Well, good morning. Here we are for Sunday of Advent. Steve was a big shot. And like uh, too many big shots, he was critical. He was a fault finder. And as a result, he was a relational paraplegic. And he didn't even know it. Uh, his constant criticism, his, his fault finding had sucked most of the oxygen out of most of the relationships in his life, including his marriage. As Steve's kids got older, they too ran for cover. Now, if you were to talk to Steve, Steve would say he loved Jesus, but most of the people around him would say work was his God. And he had no idea in just a little less than a year his ongoing affair would blow up his family, blow up his life, and his daughter would never talk to him again. Teresa was 22 and depressed. Her boyfriend had recently broken up with her. Her best friend had moved out of state. And she was having a hard time finding the kind of job that would enable her to pay off her uh, big student loans. At first, uh, Teresa just drank socially. Uh, but more recently, it had gotten out of hand. She was in pain. Uh, Teresa went from church to church, but she never landed. It's actually kind of critical. And the darkness just kept growing. Veronica was raised in the church. But she had given up on God. She had walked away from God. You see, the problem of suffering and evil for Veronica and the senseless gang violence that existed in the neighborhood she grew up in were like body blows against her faith. But it was the cancer and death of her mother that caused her to reach the tipping point. Veronica had prayed and prayed that her mother would be healed, that her mother would survive. And, and when she didn't, Veronica was done with God. Uh, so not only is there no uh, Christmas tree in Veronica's home, she's completely and totally done with ever celebrating Christmas. Now Steve, Teresa, and Veronica were all talented people. But their separate battles with materialism, with depression, uh, with the suffering and evil... Uh, had all resulted in them landing in the same place. What was that place? It's a place where circumstances trump Jesus. And all three of them had lost sight of the healing, redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And all three of them were suffering from a gospel blindness. 
And as we move into this Christmas season, 2015, in a world filled with increasing violence, turmoil, and trouble, I want to help you today guard your heart. I want to help you guard your sight. The tyranny of the urgent, uh, the seductive allure of physical things, the constant pressure to succeed, the problem of suffering and evil all around us, violence, uh, the problem of unanswered prayer, uh, magnified by uh, our inability as humans to own and admit our own problems, our own brokenness, our own weakness, all kind of collapse and create a perfect storm of sorts that cause us in the day in, day out stuff of life to functionally downsize Jesus. And we develop a spiritual blindness, a, a gospel blindness. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, uh, uh, we develop a blindness to the here and now, right today, reality of the presence of Jesus Christ and the wonder of all he offers us in the gospel. And we struggle. So during this Advent series, what we want to do is help you. But not by you looking within, but rather you looking to Jesus and the wonder of his love, the wonder of his grace. His, uh, the incredible good news of Christmas. And so today, what I want to do is I want to go way back in time and look at Jesus and grace in the Old Testament. And then next week, we're going to look at it in the New Testament. Then the week after that, uh, future grace. And then we'll conclude Christmas Eve with looking at Christmas grace. So today, what I want you to do right now is I want you to grab a Bible or turn on your Bible. There's Bibles in front of you. And I want you to turn all the way back to the book of Genesis. And about the third page in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, where we have the biblical account of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now talk about a highly controversial passage, highly debated passage, frequently dismissed as religious fiction. Adam and Eve aren't historical people, many want to contend. I believe we believe the opposite. We believe that this is a historically accurate account. But not only is it a historically accurate account, frankly, it's the only explanation for why the world is as troubled and violent as it is and, and why it will not get any better until Jesus returns. So what I want you to see here in Genesis chapter 3 is the very first thing Adam and Eve do after the fall. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them, they had just eaten the fruit, the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So here's what they do. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now it sounds acceptable, sounds perfectly harmless, uh, but, but apparently it, it's not. It's deficient. So God steps in. Now fast forward to verse 21. And we read in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, wait a minute, they had just sewed together fig leaves. Apparently, the fig leaves weren't good enough. So God makes garments of animal skins. Why? Well, look at this quote. Here's how one Old Testament scholar puts it. 
This act of God in taking of animal life laid the foundation for animal sacrifice. In this passage, we see the pattern for all salvation history. God took a sacrificial animal, probably a lamb, slew it before the eyes of Adam and Eve, wrapped the skins about their naked bodies. At that time, God gave them instructions about sacrifice and the covering of sins, and the animal was God's gift. He furnished the skins to cover Adam and Eve. Since his first covering of guilt and shame, God has always provided his people with adequate covering for them to stand before him. Oh, wow. In the very first moments after the fall, God is picturing that covering for sin requires a sacrifice. That covering for sin is, is such a big deal and sin is so heinous that it means animals, innocent animals have to die. Covering for sin requires blood. And so the sacrifice of the animal here and the covering it offers points to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the covering he offers in shedding his blood. It's right here in Genesis 3. But let me go a little deeper. Because this is so fascinating. Back up to verse 14. Genesis 3 verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, that would be Satan, because you have done this. Cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Now we have these two very important lines. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther called this, th these last two lines that is, the first announcement of the gospel in the Old Testament. And he's right. Satan the serpent will nip at the heel of all of Adam's descendants, including Jesus. And, and he will strike Jesus' heel when Jesus dies for sin. But in dying for our sin, Jesus will crush Satan's head. Accomplishing glorious, eternal uh, salvation, rescue for all who will believe. So these last two lines, when we read, he will crush your head, the he there refers to Jesus, and then when we read, and you will strike his heel, the you refers to Satan. Now here's the point. If Jesus Christ is so central to the most important story in the world, and the story of Jesus Christ told in the Bible is the most important story in the world, if Jesus is so central to crushing Satan himself that he is foreshadowed here at the very beginning of the Bible, doesn't that suggest that Jesus should be that central in our lives? And that the solution to Steve's problems, his critical spirit rooted in his pride, rooted in his idol of materialism, isn't Steve trying to do better. But Steve looking away from himself and looking to Jesus. 
and letting the death and the suffering, the, I should say the depth of the suffering of Jesus Christ in his behalf and the cover Jesus offers through his work on the cross, his resurrection, his love and his grace and his forgiveness that come to us melt Steve's heart. And it's right here. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, what is grace? Uh, grace is undeserved one-way love. What is divine grace? It's undeserved divine one-way love. And the crazy thing about Christmas, which is the ultimate family time, is it's rooted in the first family, the triune God, letting go of the perfect son. Abandoning him. Allowing Satan to strike his heel and to kill him so that God would never let go. God would never ever abandon self-centered sinners who believe. Now when Steve sees that his sin both demand the death of Christ and, and uh, his sin is covered in the death of Christ and he sees that as the central story, the central narrative uh, of his life, what happens is he, he discovers a power to overcome sin and to walk in the newness of life. When this critical, arrogant, unfaithful guy can say, I shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified Christ of God. I joined the mockery. He's on his way to becoming a new man. Steve does not need to try harder. There's way too much try harder in evangelicalism today. He needs to let the wonder of what Jesus Christ has done wash over him, to cover him, to cleanse him. That's the point of these three, of these verses in Genesis chapter 3. Steve had become blind to the gospel. He had become blind to the most important story in the world. Don't let that, don't let that happen to you. Now let's go to our second Old Testament story. The second Old Testament picture of grace, of, of Jesus and his redemption. What I want to do is I want to move ahead to the next book in the Bible, the book of Exodus, and look at the Exodus. Uh, the Exodus is the supernatural liberation of Israel from the horrific slavery and bondage uh, of Egypt. It is the central redemptive grace event in the Old Testament, bar none. The central grace event. So turn to Exodus chapter 3. We were just in Genesis 3. Let's look at Exodus uh, chapter 3. And, and as, as you're turning, and as I'm uh, turning here as well, let me just say, as a student of the Bible, I read these different stories and try to insert myself into these stories to kind of feel around and, and get a sense of what is going on. And, and I got to say that when it comes to Israel's slavery in Egypt, um, 
I, I tend to think that if I had happened to be a Hebrew slave in Egypt at the height of Pharaoh's oppression of Israel, um, that probably was one of the most oppressive, one of the most difficult, one of the most dark spiritual experiences that humanity could ever experience. I mean, you talk about where is God? Uh, you're, you're a Hebrew slave. Oh, God, what about these promises to Abraham? And it went on decade after decade, century after century. 400 years. That means generation after generation after generation after generation in bondage, in slavery, in Egypt. And when I read this and I insert myself into this story, I realize I don't have any problems. I don't have any problems. And when I read this and I think about the massive suffering of Israel, I have to conclude, yes, God has a plan for our life, but that plan involves pain. Because God uses the pain to shape us. And I read this and I think of this on the front end of Israel's history. And I want to say to you, if you don't have a theology of suffering, you don't have a theology. Because all you have are circumstances. And that's all right here in Exodus. So what I want to do is I want to look at just two slices of this incredible story. Let's look at what God says to Moses beginning in verse 7. Now this is the burning bush, the famous story. And God is speaking and we read in Exodus 3 verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jezubites, and probably mosquito bites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, Moses, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. This is not merely a story about Moses. This is also a story about Jesus, an Old Testament picture, if you will, of our Lord. How in the world do you know that? Well, let me jump ahead to a uh, uh, a section in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24, following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is with um, these guys that he met on the road to Emmaus. And I want you to see what Jesus is doing with the Bible. Look at this one verse. And beginning with, okay, we're talking about Moses, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he that would be Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, that would be the Old Testament, concerning himself, concerning Jesus. In other words, Jesus is taking these guys on a long Bible study and saying, here I am in the Old Testament. And he starts with Moses, that is the law. 
It starts with Genesis. So what our, our Lord is telling us is that we know that Moses points to Jesus because Jesus tells us so. In other words, just as Moses will deliver his people from the bondage of Egypt, so that's a picture of Jesus delivering all who will believe from the bondage of sin. And we see Jesus here again in the second book of the Bible. But you say, oh, I'm not so sure. So we ask the question, well, how? Uh, how will Moses lead Israel out of Egypt? How, how will uh, Jesus lead his people out of the bondage of, of slavery? So let me go to one of the high water marks of Exodus. Turn ahead to Exodus chapter 12. And let's talk about the Passover for a moment. Now, uh, the Passover is in the context of the ten plagues. It's actually in the context of the tenth plague. The tenth plague is where God will take the life of every Egyptian firstborn son in order to persuade Pharaoh to let the Israelites go and put an end to this death and oppression. Look at how, um, uh, look at this quote. This is from a, a fascinating book on abuse. And, and the writer says, the culminating plague uh, takes the life of every Egyptian firstborn son and persuades a hard-hearted Pharaoh to finally release his captives. The purpose of these plagues was not to destroy, but rather to display. God displays his righteous judgment against the hostile powers opposed to his people and his good purposes. He also demonstrates his magnificent saving power to all the earth. The plundering of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of Pharaoh's pursuing army inspire a song of praise for the triumphant God of Israel. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Out of sheer grace, God responded to the cries of his needy people and saved them to the uttermost. To the uttermost. God steps in. And everything changes. Now, we're in chapter 12, right? And let's line this out for a bit. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Tell, God is speaking to Moses, tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a, each, uh, a lamb for his family, one for each household. Now skip verse 4, it's long, go down to verse 5. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they will eat the lambs or eat the lambs. Now let's skip down to the next paragraph, verse 12. On the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. 
Now, how will God deliver his people? How will Moses deliver the Israelites? How, how will God protect them? How will God sustain them? How will God see them through? Uh, the answer is by shedding the blood of an innocent lamb. Only those covered in the blood of the lamb will be saved. And in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul has the audacity to tell us that Jesus is the Passover lamb. So Moses points to Jesus' redemption, Exodus chapter 3. The Passover points to how it will be accomplished, Exodus chapter 12. The shed blood of Jesus Christ. Or here in Exodus, the lambs. But what I want to say to you is that Jesus is right at the center of the Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament and you miss Jesus, you're not reading the Old Testament. Now, do you see how relevant this is? Teresa, 22 and depressed. But the deeper issue is that she's suffering from a threefold gospel blindness. First, she's blind to her identity in Jesus Christ. On the one hand, she's blind to the depth of her own sin, which makes the death of Christ necessary. And, and as a result, and a lot of us, not just millennials, a lot of us do this today, we fail to see that the biggest problems are in us, inside us, not outside us. We tend to think they're outside us. In addition, she fails to appreciate, uh, or, or she's blind to the significance of the forgiveness, the righteousness, the acceptance, uh, the love that she enjoys because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of being covered, being passed over. In other words, Teresa, lovely young lady that she is, is gospel blind. And instead of defining herself in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, she defines herself according to her circumstances and she's living horizontally. She's blind to her identity. Second, she's blind to the provision God offers us in Jesus Christ. Uh, the Apostle Peter tells us in, in, in the New Testament uh, that we have been given everything in Jesus Christ. If we know Jesus Christ, we have been ev given everything, everything, everything we need for life and godliness. Everything. That means in the right here, right now, before we get to heaven. And so the new life Moses is securing for Israel, the new life Moses is leading into for Israel is a picture of the new life God offers us in Jesus Christ. And when we go to the New Testament, according to the New Testament, uh, the provision for godliness, we've been given everything we need for godliness, the provision for godliness isn't an it, it's Jesus Christ himself. It's Galatians 2.20. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
and the life I live in the flesh, I live by trying harder. No, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, I live by locking on Jesus. Now, because of God's provision, this is where this gets so significant, especially in light of the incidence of depression in our culture today. Because of God's provision, Teresa ultimately has no worries. But she doesn't see Jesus as her Passover lamb. Jesus isn't central. Her circumstances are. So she is still functionally in Egypt. Now third, uh, Teresa is blind to God's process. The process in which he grows his people. What is that process? Well, it's not a life of ease in spite of what the commercials want us to believe. New car here, new car there. It's not a life of ease. It's a life of testing. So James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy. That's a crazy verse. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It produces spiritual maturity. How do we get to maturity, James? By being tested. So difficulty, pain, failure produce endurance. It's sanctification by setbacks. By pink slips. It's sanctification by failure. It's sanctification by, and I don't say this lightly, by tumors. Count it all joy. And Teresa doesn't need to try harder. Teresa doesn't need to look in. Teresa can't try any harder. Teresa can't look in anymore. Teresa needs to stop listening to herself and her emotions. And she needs to start talking to herself. Talking to herself in light of God's word. And to tell herself who Jesus is. All that she has been given in Christ. And the trials and difficulty and disappointment and setbacks are part of the discipleship process. Now, how can she do this? Uh, where does she find the, the, the power to, to live this way? Uh, again, uh, by taking her eyes off herself and looking to the one whose redemption is so central, it is the one story of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. One last picture, I'll be brief. I want you to turn ahead to the prophecy of Isaiah. Let's go, let's go hundreds of years ahead to Isaiah chapter 53. Hopefully I'm going to come back to this in a couple of weeks. I want you to see just two verses in this amazing Old Testament picture prophecy of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he, that would be the suffering servant, was pierced for our transgressions. Now notice the language, crushed, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Now in this context, healed here is in the sense of forgiveness. 
We all, verse 6, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I don't know about you, but this is breathtaking for me. This is an Old Testament prophecy of Jesus who will be pierced, who will be crushed for our sin. So that sinners, broken, uh, dysfunctional people who believe will be healed, forgiven. Now, I can't tell Veronica why certain things happen, certain terrible things happen the way they do. Uh, uh, I have no answer for why in a specific way um, the, the, the violence in her neighborhood of origin occurred. Uh, I can't tell her why her um, parent died, cancer. Uh, I, I, I can't tell her why my alcoholic father abandoned our family or why cancer has ravaged our family. Uh, I, I can't tell you the whys with specificity behind the Paris bombings or ISIS. Or what in the world is going on with the increasing incident of racism in the United States? Uh, but when you look at the suffering servant here in Isaiah 53, I can tell you what the answer isn't. The answer isn't that God doesn't care. He crushed his son to rescue us, to save us, to redeem us, uh, to transform us. He put his son to death on the cross uh, so that we might overcome the enormous capacity of the human heart for evil. Now looking to Jesus Christ on the cross that doesn't answer our questions of why this, why that, why this suffering, why this evil. It doesn't, but it tells us what God has done about it. It tells us where this is going. I mean, the infinite cost of the sun. Now, I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're like Steve or like Teresa or like Veronica. Well, what I want to say to you is all the great Christmas prophecies that we're familiar with, you know, Bethlehem, um, the virgin being with child, and on and on, all of those must be seen in light of the main storyline of the Old Testament. The New Testament. What is that? That the baby was born to die. That redemption is in the blood of Jesus Christ. So uh, this Christmas, as you gather around your Christmas tree, uh, remember another tree way back. Not decorated with beautiful ornaments but covered in the blood of Jesus Christ you see you don't need more stuff uh, you don't need better circumstances we all need Jesus
who alone is the hope of the world. So as early as Genesis 3, he's the, the, the covering. In Exodus 12, it's a Passover lamb. And in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, he's a suffering servant. Jesus Christ alone is the hope of our, for our troubled world. He is central in the Bible. May he, may he please God, may he be central in your life as we move through Advent. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, this 